Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my honor to introduce Jeremy Kyle with me. He's a fellow financial planner and enthusiast of the psychology of motivational interviewing. He says, well, he's a student, but I'm going to have him teaching today on the value of motivational interviewing and how it helps his clients move from pre-retirement into retirement. Now, I know many of my listeners are not quite there at that stage of ready to retire, but I want you to listen to Jeremy's insights about what it takes to get to that stage of being ready to consider retirement and then what it's like life afterwards moving into there. Because I know for most of us, that's what we're working towards. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ed. Thank you. I'm so excited. So, Jeremy, you're calling in from the greater Milwaukee area. How cold is it there right now? Oh, it's not too bad. It's uh, 22 degrees this morning, high of 40, and it's uh, basically the 1st of December. So that, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. How bad will it get this winter? Uh, again, not too bad, because I'm sure there's some people in like the Dakotas or uh, <laughs> Alaska listening, things like that. But uh, usually, uh, it'll, be, it'll be zero uh, fairly often. And that's kind of the, the distinguishing factor of if it's below zero, the kids do not go outside for recess. So if it's one degrees outside, pack a coat because they're going outside for recess. Holy smokes. School is canceled if it gets below like 30 degrees in the Carolinas. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the poor kids here in the South just would turn into popsicles, but up there, that's fun. So uh, Jeremy, what do you guys do for fun up there when is that cold? Yeah. So uh, a lot of people around here, they'll do uh, snowmobiling. Uh, there's snowmobile trails that are right outside of my subdivision. Uh, I don't do that myself. Uh, I kind of like to to work out, and you can do that indoors any time of the year. And so, but uh, I'd say, uh, yeah, snowmobiling, ice fishing—that's the big one. I'd say because yeah. that's that's just odd. You're driving by, and you look over, and you see there's people in the middle of nowhere uh, next to a shack with trucks or ATVs next to it. Uh-huh. And if you're not from around here, you're wondering that's a really big field. Why is everyone there? But if you're from around here, you realize that's not a field, that's a lake. And everyone's driven their really big half-ton trucks onto it because they've they figured out how to how to do that and what level of ice you can do that safely with. Yeah, I guess once you know, but it just my nerves are racked just thinking about the idea of driving a half-ton truck onto ice. Yeah, and me, me neither. Both, both those activities are things I, I don't uh, partake <laughs> in, but that's what you do around here. No, that's wonderful. Well, Jeremy, how did you end up in the field of financial planning? Yeah, I was in uh, college ROTC, Uh and so I was going to go into the Army. I hurt my back, and they wouldn't take me in. And so all of a sudden, I had to change my my life trajectory, I suppose. Yeah. And my my aunt talked to me. She worked for a place called Thrive and Financial. Uh And she said, uh, you sell suits at Jose Bank, and you're good with money, or you're good with math, rather. You got to become a financial advisor. And I, I tried it out and from day one, absolutely loved it. Just the idea that you can uh, kind of help people with their money, that you can 
learn different pieces of, of math related to money. I grew up doing a lot of different uh, kind of like math logic puzzles. Uh, I was part of like a math team. So yeah. I mean like l- nerdy math guy. Uh, yeah. But it's amazing because when you're a financial advisor, you're putting together puzzles. Uh, uh-huh. and, and I get to put together puzzles that benefit others to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's way more cool than, you know, some... <laughs> some contest or, uh, you know, just for, just for yeah. the fun of it, just to fill out a, fill out a puzzle. Just a puzzle for the sake of enjoyment. Now you do yeah. puzzles for work, it, but right. it is enjoyable. And your the yep. reward is your clients are better off to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on, on their particular puzzle. When I run the math, that's the, uh, that's the case. And I'll tell you, actually, there's, there's really two puzzles to solve and you're a, you know, fellow advisor. So you get this. So the first puzzle is just kind of how do you fit their pieces together uh-huh. uh, with the client? The second puzzle, which is the tougher one is how do you get them to do it? It's, it's the math is yeah. the easy part. Once you understand the math, the math is easy. One plus one remains two from now until forever. Exactly. But yep. how to get you excited about your one plus one equals two, that's a whole nother question. And that's, so is that how you got to motivational interviewing as part of your process? Yeah, I got to motivational interviewing where I, I've gotten to plenty of conferences. You and I met at a conference. So I'm assuming, right. Ed, you've gotten to plenty of conferences. Oh, yeah. And at a, a typical financial conference, half the speakers will get up on stage and they will say, the key to success is to ask good questions. And I kind of just am waiting for them to say the next thing, like, here's how you go about <laughs> right. asking good questions. I never got that. Every so often you get the people that are like, and here's the magic question that will, you know, make everyone fall over and just, you know, yeah, believe right. anything you say. Puddle, and, and, putty in your hand. Yeah. No, it yeah, doesn't work like that way. The magic question just, that, that just really ticks me off. I don't like that idea. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, so I don't know how I came across it. Uh, it could be from my wife's elementary school counselor. So she's oh, uh-huh. big in the psychology. She's got a master's in educational psychology. So I'm, I'm assuming that's the, the first connection, but somehow uh-huh. I came across motivational interviewing, which is a, I guess a, a, a guided discussion about change. I'm like, oh my goodness, uh, here's how you go about asking questions. Although if you know much about motivational interviewing, it's not just asking questions. <laughs> it's how do you have a conversation around change? And that's, that was wonderful. Finally, I knew how to ask questions, how to uh, kind of guide people through this, this discussion. That's incredible. I hear the excitement and just that relief of, because I guess what is so frustrating for many advisors is they do the math side, they run the analysis, and then they say, okay, client, here's what I need you to change. Mm-hmm. And the clients either do one of a couple of things, right? It's look at you and say, oh, okay, yeah, thanks, Jeremy. This is great. We'll get right on that. And then they don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Or they say, okay, thanks. And then they go forward and do it. I mean, there's really, it's a binary. Right. And uh, I'm just thinking of uh, my kids right now. And usually when you tell them to do something, they will absolutely not do it. You know, if <laughs> almost a guarantee. Yeah. If you put pizza in front of them and that's their favorite food and you say, eat the pizza, they won't do it. Right. Uh, so in motivational interview, and that's called the writing reflex, where basically whatever you say, the instant response of any human being is the opposite. And so telling people what to do is usually the best way to make sure it doesn't happen. <laughs> that's all a uh, uh, reverse psychology, right? I think some would say. I guess, but, yeah. yeah. If you but, want to go that route, I guess. But what, motivational interviewing is really based in in the ethics of doing what's right for the client or helping them discover what's right for them, right? So can you walk us through like a client scenario where you're using motivational interviewing with them to help them go from pre-retirement to retirement? 
Yeah. Well, I'm just going to summarize because I, I don't know if we've fully defined motivational interviewing. So my oh. summary that I use, I don't know if it's you know, yeah, let's do it. correct or not, but it's what helps me out. But I'd say that motivational interviewing is helping someone believe they can change something. Uh, another way I look at it is uh, it's a process of interacting with clients. Of course, that's you know my world is clients, I guess. Yeah. A process of interacting with clients to help them align their behavior with their goals and values. It's really the process part. Like, how do you go about actually helping people do do this? So I like that first one is believe that they can change. Mm-hmm. That's really where it does start because a lot of us don't necessarily even start with the belief that we can change or or change at least this particular aspect of it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I could tell them, hey, you could change. You know, I've seen other people change. Mm-hmm. You know, that's maybe a little bit better. But to get them to actually express it or come to that realization themselves is uh, certainly going to be more more impactful. So, Jeremy, you don't tell all your clients like, well, Bill and John, I just, Bill and Sally, whoever, I just met with them, yeah. and they just retired. So I know you can do it, too. They had similar types of numbers. You don't do that? Well, that's, that, that's, a, that's a step above, right? It's getting you there, <laughs> right? It's a kind of social proof. Like people that are like you yeah. uh, can, can do these things. But um, yeah, your question is, a, is a, a bit around, I guess, how do I use it? I don't know if uh, I don't know if use is the right word, uh, but how I, we'll, we'll maybe figure out the right word as soon as we're done uh, recording yeah. it. But right. uh, yeah, how do we, uh, with, with motivational interviewing, it's, it's again, it's it's kind of, um, it's just having a guided discussion. It's how do you, you, you're getting to the point of what they're looking for. You're getting uh, to them making decisions on their own. Like I can tell you, here's the best social security decision. I can tell you when to retire. I can tell you all kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, but unless you come to that conclusion on your own, it's just not gonna be as impactful or lasting. Uh, what's interesting enough in our world is that usually the first change someone is making and they've kind of reached out to you about it is they're looking for advice. Like they, they're thinking of it, of retiring. They're thinking of finding a financial advisor. They haven't retired yet. They haven't found a financial advisor yet. And so one change you actually help them through is making the choice of hiring a financial advisor, which oftentimes might be, you know, the person that's talking to them, which in my case would be would be me. So that's, that's an interesting thing where uh, I listen to a lot of financial advisor podcasts. I talk to a lot of prospective clients and they tell mm-hmm. me what their prior experience is with, uh, with advisors. And a lot yeah. of times uh, when a client shows up or a potential client shows up to an advisor, the advisor will say, send me all your information ahead of time. Uh, uh, or the advisor say, when do you want to retire and what do you want to do? Well, they don't know when they want to retire. They don't know what they want to do. And so those are kind of uh, uh, starting off on the wrong foot. And even too, just uh, the notion that send me all your stuff ahead of time just kind of puts people into the thought that, oh, this is just a numbers game. And it's almost like this advisor is going to have the black box and figure it all out and say, you know, here's the magic solution. And that's that's just not it. So when when I meet with somebody, when any one of my staff meets with somebody who's new to us, the first question we ask is, how can we help? Uh, and it's, you know, that, this is open-ended. It seems so simple. It seems so simple. Uh, another way to say it, what brings you here today? Uh-huh. You know, and a lot of times in my world, um, it's, oh, I want to retire soon. Sometimes they do actually bring the bunch of papers over uh-huh. and they kind of are like, here's all my stuff. Can you solve it? 
and then <laughs> kind of our thought is, well, let's set that aside, right? Do you mind if we ask some questions first uh, to make sure that we know if there's anything here on the pieces of paper that are relevant you know, for us? Uh, another question we'd like to ask is, what prompted you to look right now? Because a lot of people will say, I want to retire. Well, you might've wanna retire yesterday or last week or last year. Like, what is it today that actually made you to, to reach out and pick up the phone and, and book on our calendar? And that's a good question because oftentimes there was something like, oh, well, I got this letter that said I have to make a pension decision within 30 days. Or my dad died at 60, I'm turning 60 next year. That's why I want to retire. Uh -huh. You know, there's all these things that, that come up by just kind of asking open-ended questions and discovering what it is people are looking for. Well, and it, it helps them deepen that connection to their own change process, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of you assuming you know why they want to change or what's motivating them to change, you're really understanding and helping them understand what's motivating them to change. And maybe they've been aware that their dad died at 60 and they're coming up on it, but they're not, they haven't fully connected that through psychologically that that's actually prompting them to say, I want to retire. At least that's been my experience oftentimes. Is it's like, yeah, just right under the surface, but you ask them that question and then it's like, oh yeah. And then there's so much more bought into moving forward with the the next step. Right. Yeah. So, and we've mentioned some of these already, but some of the skills uh, that you learn when you're learning motivational interviewing, the first one is, you notice how it's all open in the questions that I've mentioned so far. Mm -hmm. uh, but the next one is affirmations. You know, it's it can be scary to show up in a financial advisor's office, bring your tax returns, like no one else has seen your tax returns. You know, admit that you're worth millions or you're worth nothing, right? You know, financially. Either side of that is terrifying. Right, yeah, either uh, side of that's terrifying. And so uh, affirming that they've made some great choices already just by showing up in your office is a, is a great first step. You know, and there's plenty of opportunities that uh, you as a advisor would have to affirm things that the prospective or a current client has already done. Because chances are they've done some good things. Like generally speaking, someone who's meeting with a financial advisor has probably made more right decisions than wrong. That's, that's kind of what I come across on there. So there's a lot of opportunities to affirm that they're in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And if someone kind of realizes that, that they're, they're already in the right direction, they feel more ability to keep going towards that right direction with mm -hmm. you know, perhaps asking for some guidance you know, from someone like us. And how often do you think your clients are getting other sources of external affirmation that they've been doing a good job and they're on the right track? I was just, I don't know, who was I listening to? I think it might've been your podcast. Actually, yeah. Ed, I was listening yeah. to your podcast this weekend and uh, someone you had on was talking about uh, kind of ignoring the financial experts. Oh. And they're also talking about how the financial expert game is kind of shameful. Uh -huh. Like do this, don't do that. You know, right. Deny yourself these things, right? So there, you're maybe almost feeling and hearing shame. Like every time you go to Starbucks and you you pick up that latte, you remember that latte factor book, and oh my goodness, that's oh a bad bad thing to do. Or or you go out and you uh, you know spend money on your credit card, and you've got another uh, personality that said that's a bad choice, right? right. Or you 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 keep your mortgage at three percent when uh, you're earning five percent on other investments, and you're you're thinking that's a bad choice because you've been told all these things you can't do, right? right? So there's uh, according to 
your podcast, Dad. <laughs> There's uh, not too often in the financial <laughs> expert world you actually hear these affirmations, and and they're helpful. I love that. They're affirming. They're affirming. I love it. I'm feeling affirmed in my affirming. There you go. But yeah, this is funny. No, I love it. I'm glad that we're pausing on this. And just to say, like, I think sadly, there's a lot of planners that are, are doing things unintentionally shaming. They see it as trying to be helpful and encouraging and protective, right? They, from their lens. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was something I saw recently, like where the advisor's job, you know, is like you, the image was like you, then advisor, and then stupid. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I get the intent is like the advisor is supposed to help you stop from doing stupid things. But like, I don't think that that really helps anybody because I think we're already so afraid of doing stupid, like, and there are, in my book, there are no stupid money decisions. It's, we're all doing the best we can with the knowledge and information we have at the time that Mm -hmm. we have it. So, you know, like I have, have clients or other folks will talk about money, past money mistakes that they've made decades ago. Sure. And they're still beating themselves over it. And I'm like, you were 20. Right. And you didn't know anything about how credit card debt worked. And mm-hmm. you were just trying to have a good time. Like, you didn't maliciously just, you know. So, anyhow, I digress. Uh, so, affirmation, you're an affirming planner. I like this. Yeah. Like, hey, this is a good job. This is cool. And so, and you can always find something good about someone's financial life to point out and compliment yeah. them on. Right. There's, yep. it's never all bad. Right. You're generally not going to make, good decisions from a bad mental space. Yeah. And so uh, if you can find ways to get people in a good mental space to get uh, you know, affirmed, empowered, I think you're, you're more likely to get good decisions out of that. And I, th- I think that's part of the idea where the initiators of motivational interviewing came, came up with the idea of, of affirmations. And then, of course, they're, they know what they're doing. They're testing things out. And they're realizing that affirmations are a helpful way to guide people along towards the change they want to make. Right, I guess because it, it all kind of bellies into that um, positive sense of who we are as a person, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we feel good about who we are, then it's easier to make positive decisions for ourselves. But if if we feel bad about who we are, then we're it's harder to make good decisions for ourselves or to see things clearly. Yeah. So you're saying so open ended questions, affirmations. What else is part of? Yeah, the the next two, and if you if you're playing along at home, it adds up to a word, uh, ORS, O A R S. So open-ended questions, affirmations, next is reflections and summarizing. And I guess the big difference, reflections is more of like a um, kind of a, a statement back about one particular thing and a summarize is a summary is, is a statement back about multiple things. Uh, but notice real quick there too, because that was interesting where I thought the key to success was asking great questions. Uh, OARS, one of them's questions, three of them are statements. If I just keep asking you questions and questions and questions and questions, you get very defensive. And so a conversation is is not always questions. Uh, even though it's called motivational interviewing, it's it's not always just like interviewing. You ask question after question, you feel like you're, you know, the uh, the TV show where you're you're having the the cops like yeah, interrogate it, yeah, you know, pounding on the desk and interrogating you, right? Right. Yeah, it's an interview, not an interrogation. You ask too many questions, you, you make it sound like an interrogation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You got these clients coming in, they're pre-retirement. And when you take them through and use, I, thank you for reminding me of the ORS acronym. Um, it is helpful. So those playing at home, I loved it. Uh, 
O A R S. So, you, you know, I think as listeners, one listening to Jeremy talk, I hope gives you a, a different lens for what an experience with a financial planner can feel like and sound like. But I also want you to know that these are great. This this ORS framework is something you can use with your partner too for getting to know them and helping them with change process. Right? Because a lot of times intimate partners are trying to tell their partners that you need to change, you should retire. Why aren't you ready to retire? I mean, I don't know if I'm guessing you run into that kind of stuff too sometimes, right? I've been telling them we needed to retire for years. Why did you wait so long? Yeah, some of that I don't get out in the the open. Okay. Uh, but I'm I'm thinking now it's it's funny too because uh, my wife's an elementary school counselor, and uh-huh. so one of the reflections she gave to me uh, here here's what uh, my in my coach told me once is when you're giving a reflection, you uh, don't want to uh, inflect up so that sounds like a question. Oh, uh-huh. and so here's what she told me once: I I came straight home from my motivational interviewing. I was feeling all pumped up. I, I learned some stuff, and she said, "Now you're reflective listening." <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was a reflection, but the way that the inflection came out was kind of a accusational uh, question. So I tease her about that um, uh, because it's it's been, uh, you, you want to be careful that your reflections actually are reflections, you know, and, and to, to her point, I think she was kind of doing it on purpose, but if she said, now you're reflective listening, right. that would have been a reflection and affirmation. And I would have said, yes, I am. I learned it and I'm I'm rolling. Let's get this you know, going uh, <laughs> on there. So that's a, that's a danger. I use that as an example. Uh, and I, I think she was uh, doing it on purpose to, to, to point out the difference. <laughs> you know, but we do use it a lot, um, the two of us, where it's been, it's a better conversation. And I'll pick on myself as a guy, like some of us guys just don't know how to have discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you either sit there nodding silently or right. you want to jump in or you're, you're sometimes wondering like, what is this lady talking about? Like, I just don't understand how this is a big deal. Right. And I think even on our end, like giving a reflection, giving a summary, like having me restate it to my wife and now it came out of my words and now it's almost being imprinted on my brain. Like, oh, uh, she's feeling this way because, uh-huh. and that's now in my head and she's also hearing like, oh, he knows why I'm feeling this way. Like it's a better conversation. It's not just imprinting on the other person's brain by doing reflections. It's imprinting on our own brain that this is why the other person's feeling this way or or talking that way. I love that imagery of, you know, in that reflections is we're actually trying to use back our partner's thoughts towards them but in the way that it gets imprinted on our brain, it, we actually feel what they're feeling a little more. And so empathy is the word that comes to my mind. Um, but when done well, our partners feel like, oh, they finally get get me. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just funny. I was doing a previous interview with Ashley Kwame, who uh, is a fellow therapist, and her husband's a planner. And I was, okay. we we're joking about, wait, I wonder how many planners and therapists are married together. All right. We got at least two that we know about here. And I know there's another, another one, at least in the top of my head, I won't name them just because they haven't given me permission to, but, and there's a public podcast, but anyhow, what's really interesting is because I, I, my wife is not a therapist, she's a dentist. So I don't know, that's a whole nother wild card, but I know both sides of these conversations because I've been trained professionally on both sides. And so 
you know, sorry if you're not a therapist and a planner couple, much love, but they're power couples. I'm going to say like the planner and the therapist are the new power couple. I'll take it. You need to find friends. I'm going to give a should. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it. If you can find a financial planner and a therapist couple, you might have a really good friend. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. So, Jeremy, would you be willing to share a little bit about, like, the money dance with your wife? How does that go? It's been interesting because, and I'm trying to, maybe uh, you'll end up with the money therapist hat on. Okay. She Before we met, she was very empowered with money, I'd say. Uh-huh. Like, she, when I met her, she would always, and this is like, well, this is 17 years ago now. Yeah. So, she would, she would balance her checkbook every month uh-huh. and I wouldn't because I just knew there was money there <laughs> okay. you know? yeah. and I would set up my things automatically on, on putting to Roth IRAs and stuff Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as we got married it was like um, that burden was lifted off her shoulders uh-huh. and so she's spent the last 13 years of marriage kind of ignoring the money side because she just figured she, I've got it covered which is trusting that's a you know I think somewhat of a positive right. at the same time her memories of money were when she was a college student making like eight bucks an hour uh, babysitting. Uh-huh. So now when big financial discussions come up, mm. I mean, it's a big financial discussion from two working professional couples and the dollar amounts are way bigger now uh-huh. than they were 15 years ago when she was you know, in a college student making eight bucks an hour babysitting kind of stuff. Right. And so, uh, it's really easy when you're somebody that's great at balancing your checkbook to see all the, almost like all the the, the negatives, like the money that came out of your checkbook. Mm-hmm. And she's got those numbers in mind from 15, 15 years ago. Yeah. So she's really good seeing the negatives that come out of our checkbook now uh-huh. that are huge compared to then. Right. And feeling a sense of fear and worry, but somehow isn't quite to the point where she sees the positives that are going in the checkbook that are uh-huh. also bigger than they were 15 years ago. And believe me, are are bigger to the point where the higher expenses are still all working out, right? Like like if it's right. 11X your your income compared to a college kid right. and you're only 8Xing your spending, like that's a good formula right. yeah, in the long run. Uh, right. But she, she's very good at seeing the money that comes out, but not necessarily the money that goes in, which is an interesting... Uh, interesting dynamic. It is an interesting dynamic. And there's, you know, a couple of different ways that for me, when I hear that and I listen to it and one to just say, it's not uncommon, you know, in the couples that I've worked with, especially with financial planners, um, where the partner that's married to the planner will kind of defer and give up a lot of that decision-making. And that's not unique to being married to a financial planner. That happens in a lot of relationships, but there's an added layer there because of the professional identity and expectation. And yet at the same time, it's because you're a financial planner, 
and also husband and all these other roles that you, your partner will not fully listen to your advice and guidance as a right. planner. Yep. And so it creates a really difficult bind for couples working on their shared finances. I think you're really onto something too, right? Is when we check out from our numbers and we get disconnected from how fast things go up, it, it is hard when you see thousands of dollar decisions versus $50 decisions. Right. Right. And she's really good at those. And then she skipped out on the decisions for however many years. Mm-hmm. And as I've tried to pull along and, you know, you get to certain points, like I, yeah, I'll just tell you, so anything less than like $500 as, <laughs> as far as spending, uh-huh. that seems to be my threshold. Like that's, that's fine. I'm just going to go spend it and do it. It'd, it'd be fine. Right. Like that's what works out for me. Yeah. Anything less than like $10, she's still talking to me about because that's that's big in her mind from 15 years ago. And so uh, uh, I don't want to be making decisions with thousands of dollars without her input. Right. And and yet those are stressful conversations uh, for the two of us because of um, I'm learning how to you, it's easier to talk to a client than it is to talk to your spouse. That's for sure. Right. It, it Oh man. Oh, we got a whole podcast episode right here. And this is, this is very real for, for planners. I'm smiling and laughing a little bit just in the sense of camaraderie and the bigger pattern is um, as professionals. So listeners, if you're a professional that does money work or even therapy work, right? Because I think that that was showing up a little bit earlier when your wife was poking at you a little bit, like now, you know, reflective listening is like, I've been trying to teach you this crap for years, dude. Yep, probably. And you finally figured it. it out, right? So it goes. I'm somebody both. else. You paid how much money to go to a, a conference to to learn this? Oh man, uh, you know it's yeah. I mean, I love my wife, and uh, but she was even talking with a friend who has a business background, and she was like, "Oh, I'd love to pay you to come look at my business." And I'm like, "Wait, what about me? Like, I, right? Like, why don't you? I would love to hear that phrase. I I love so yes. Anyhow." We're digressing, but yes, the how do I engage my wife in these newer numbers? And part of that too is, and I don't know if this is true for the two of you, but another aspect or lens that I look through often with couples is around social class adjustment. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't grow up in professional families, all of a sudden, like what you're spending and you have access to is very different. And so that can feel intimidating and overwhelming. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true for, for the two of you or not, but looking at the, the oars, um, lens is those open-ended questions about, you know, what is it like for you to see the thousand dollar decision, right? And asking that question, getting that curious and then, you know, affirming just her being able to talk about that because we have visceral responses to numbers. Mm -hmm. That's why we stop looking at, looking at them and having that ability to, be with your partner, be patient with them, create a safe enough environment. And, you know, sometimes there's repair work too. If there's been criticism and judgment in the past around numbers, um, that has to be acknowledged before you can really work on the present stuff. And so uh, that becomes a a fun dynamic too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get it. So, you know, we are bumping along, learning how to be married, learning how to do our finances um, because we don't get those classes formally. Yeah, you get high school or college. And so many of us find our way into our professions as a way of trying to do better than what we saw in our own families. Hmm. 
I wanted to just invite your your wife onto the show right now. I'm like, hey, I know. Yeah, right. She, she's probably at the office. She's not going to come on, but no, nope, that'd be great. Next time, the therapy. Yeah, maybe we'll do that the next time. You you uh, you ask your wife if she agrees. I'll happily have you guys back on, and we'll Let's we'll have do a, it. a conversation. Um, because this is it is challenging to figure out when my partner won't engage in the money conversations with me. What mm-hmm. can I do? How do I get them to engage? I want to have these conversations. I don't like you, that one side is. I appreciate the trust that you put in and yep. yet this is, these decisions make an impact both of us and your input matters. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. I'm looking here at another acronym that's yes. related to motivational interviewing. And I think it might be relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, but they call it the, the style of motivational interviewing and it's PACE, P-A-C-E, partnership, acceptance, compassion, and empathy. And I think whether you have a, uh, uh, I don't know, consultant, client relationship, or you've mm-hmm. got just any relationship, just right. approaching any conversation, approaching anyone with partnership, acceptance, compassion, and empathy is a good good starting place. Although you're the therapist, I got to ask you, because I'm, I'm hearing this, and I, I knew it exactly the time when I was studying it, but compassion versus empathy. Tell me, what is that difference? I'm putting well, you on the spot. Yeah, no, that's great. I don't, you know, it's funny. I, I'm looking around like, where's my Brene Brown book? Uh, right. She might know. Actually, I've got it right here. So this, I'm going to give the book recommendation right now. This is Brene Brown's book called Atlas of the Heart. And she does an incredible job working through many of these types of words where we do get stuck differentiating between what's the difference between compassion and empathy. And so off the top of my head, I'm giving my best stab at it. And it, that I feel even shaky. Um, more confidently empathy and she actually talks about it in here is there's cognitive and affective empathy Um, i'm probably going to go too deep into the weeds on this but empathy is that ability to understand the person's experience from their perspective not our own okay and that's very hard to do right but that's what we're shooting for with empathy is I'm trying my best to imagine what it's like to be in your shoes and to make the decisions that you're making, taking into my, all of who you are and all of that you've lived through. What I, and from that perspective, then I can understand why you would make the decisions that you're doing. Mm-hmm. If I've seen the things that you've seen, felt the things that you've seen and felt the relationship joys and losses that you have, I would probably come to the same types of conclusions. Mm-hmm. And so, Empathy is about getting into the experience. I think compassion oftentimes, and empathy can be for all kinds of different experiences. Compassion is, I think, often more around when there's distress. Mm-hmm. I'm really struggling. I'm going to have to do my homework after this one and, and go back there and go. look at the definition of compassion because I feel like intuitively I know what it is, but putting right. words to it. And and I would just say that that's actually a good thing when we're on these journeys of growing and maturing and developing emotional maturity is it's really okay to hit that point where you're like, you know what? I actually don't know if, if I know that the difference I, I've taken the words to be almost synonymous mm-hmm. when there's, there's not, there is a, a difference in phenomena around what compassion is describing versus empathy, but I don't know. And so now I've, we've just identified a learning edge for me to go back and clarify that up a little bit. Yeah. I'm wondering here, you, you talking it out, I'm wondering if compassion is more about caring for someone's situation and empathy is understanding someone's experience. 
that, that feels that feels like it's getting close. It feels like it's getting close. All right. I'm yeah. so anyhow, <laughs> podcast interview. I'm nerding out. Jeremy's ner- nerding out. And we're working on language. And this is part of building emotional intelligence and being in relationship. And I think whether you know the formal definition of compassion or not, the idea is um, as opposed to judgment and criticism and being careless, like uncaring, compassion is the other side of that, right? Is, do I really care for this person? Am I really interested in their well-being and their outcome? And I think maybe there's, that's maybe even part of that compassion too is mm-hmm. I'm concerned for your well-being, not just my own well-being. Yeah. Because that's, it's very challenging to hold that balance in our intimate relationship with our partner and money yep. to, to not lose our own self-interest, mm-hmm. but to not lose sight of our partner's needs as well and to hold those things in tension with each other. Right. I like how you use the word concern because that would be an area that works out well in a conversation. And I'm thinking the financial one, you know, if, if, I'm talking to someone about their social security decision. Mm-hmm. And I think math-wise, they're doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Or uh, somebody younger, maybe we're thinking, oh my goodness, you aren't saving a dollar and you have crazy amounts of credit card debt. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, you've got no savings and a ton of credit card debt, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. You could also you could say and said, I'm concerned you're not going to reach your goals with this level of assets and with the amount of credit card debt. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned you won't have enough money later on in life if you take that social security amount at 62 mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe a different way to go like to raise that concern is a better way to go than saying well that's a that's a bad choice <laughs> yeah. right that's exactly right i think it's a it is coming around to compassionate i'm pr- primed on that word now that's a more compassionate response and then kind of coming around and using the motivational interviewing so you're able to show your compassion for them and say as a professional or as your spouse, I care about you and I'm concerned that this arrangement's not going to work out well for you or for us. You know, and then really because motiv- the heart of motivational interviewing is worrying, figuring out how concerned are they about this arrangement. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. where are they in those stages of change and preparing mm-hmm. to, to change, which is another big part of motivational interviewing is understanding that we all go through stages of readiness for change. Right. So, yeah, I may have a lot of credit card debt and not a lot of savings, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily ready to change. Yeah, yep. Even if I'm meeting with you as a financial planner. Mm-hmm, yep, you got it. Well, one thing you asked me uh, before we hit record was about what does retirement actually look like Yeah. for people? Yeah. Because uh, a, a lot of your listeners are, are maybe not facing a retirement decision next month or next year, but they, they probably want to at some point. Yeah. Some of them probably want to be facing that decision now, but they know they're yeah. 10 years out or more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it's, you know, what I see is a lot of uh, fear, worry, anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. again, like three different words for relatively the same thing. Right. Uh, but that right there, when you have that, uh, a lot of times you stick your head in the sand. Like I've, I've got a, um, a client who uh, I've been trying to talk to her about her pension for years. Mm. I know she has a pension. Uh-huh. And I just can't get, it's not like I can call the pension company and say, hi, my name's Jeremy. Can I get this info? Like, it's not going to happen. Uh, it's just a good thing. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Good thing in the world. <laughs> but finally, uh, after three years, I finally got her to uh, look at this. 
uh, together, right? We're doing this together. Uh-huh. Uh, she's got to be there to, to give her permissions and all that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out uh, not only does she have the pension, not only um, can she file for it, but actually she maxed out three years earlier. Uh-huh. And so it's potentially that she's been missing a monthly payment for month after month after month where she might not actually get this back. You know, that, that might right. be the case. I don't know. You yeah. know, we got to explore that. Uh-huh. And so this is back in May. And so uh, finally in November, six months later, I was able to uh, get her to actually call in. So we just found the information online. Uh-huh. We have to call in to actually get the information. So it took me six months of working on, uh, let's let's just call in. Uh, so the, this fear, this worry, anxiety, right? I don't, I don't want to uh, depress anyone who's thinking about retirement, but it's yeah. a real thing to where people stick their head in the sand and right. they often uh, miss out on opportunities or often miss out on money uh, because of that. And thank goodness, uh, it turns out that she can actually kind of backdate it. Like she's going to get the money back, yeah, which is which is a great thing. But just imagine how much better her life would have been the last three years to have, you know, no. 600, 800 bucks, whatever the number is coming in every month to help her monthly bills, right? Yeah, it would have been huge. And that's that, I think the psychological readiness for retirement, right, is and some level of psychological ambivalence about I'm ready, I'm not ready to retire. And yep. we can be in that place of ambivalence for a long time. And that's the beauty of mo- the motivational interviewing process is you can really start to get into the depth of that and yeah, figure out because we can want to be able to retire. And then once we get to the precipice of being ready to leave, realize who am I now? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do with myself? Those yeah. are big questions psychologically that if you're not ready to answer, you'll sabotage and right. not, yeah. not look at your financial information yep. as a way of deferring things. So, And I think for her, which uh, I see often, is it's kind of a fear of making the wrong decision. Like there's yes. FOMO, fear of missing out. So uh-huh. I don't know whether that be fear of making the wrong decision is whatever that... Whatever that I, acronym I, works out to be. Whatever that acronym is, whatever I, be, I, uh, I see that often where it's like, if I uh-huh. don't make a decision then I can't make the wrong decision, which actually is usually the wrongest decision you can yes. you can make. So I, I see that uh, and try to work through that with people. But uh, another yes. big part of it, retirement, is just that transition from saver to spender. Like you and I were at a conference where the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early yeah. is big. Yeah. And so these folks uh, spend 10, 15, 20 years of I'm a saver. Mm-hmm. Hardcore identity saver. Yeah. Identity saver. Exactly. And whether you spent 10 years saving 90% of your income or you spent 40 years saving 10% of your income, whatever it is, you still have this identity of a saver. And next thing you know, uh, you've got to start taking money out of your accounts instead of uh, putting money in. And I've seen it gone both ways where I've seen people where they just can't make that transition. And so they don't spend the money, they don't take the money out and they make decisions where they're missing out on experiences because they're afraid of becoming the the spender or they're worried about uh, the amounts that are in your account. Or I've gone the other ways of like, flip a switch. Oh yeah, I'm a spender now. It's freewheeling because I've saved for it. And I can finally, you know, I've sacrificed for 40 years. And so now right. I can, you know, uh-huh. get the fruits of my labor. So I've seen both of those and those are, equally tough conversations because on 
on yes. like, some folks are are missing out on experiences. Other folks probably will miss out on experiences when they blow through all their money. And so it's been a that's that transition from saver to spender. I think is one of the biggest uh, retirement transitions uh, that that's out there. Do you think it would? I think it would be more helpful for people to see themselves as savers and spenders their whole life. Right, because like, you are right. Even if you save 90% of your income, you're spending something. You're spending 10% of your money. You are a spender. Right. And we can get so locked with one side of that identity or the other that we we don't know how to hold them both. And the deferred gratification, right, is that the second example that you're giving. Look at this pot of gold. And as as a planner, you run the projection and say, okay, well, you can safely withdraw. I'm just making up a number $3,000 a month. And you'll be fine and, you know, you'll leave a little inheritance for your kids. That's your goal, right? Yeah, that's my goal. That's how much I need to leave. But it says I have $500,000. So I guess, you know, I can go do a $50,000 kitchen renovation. Well, mm-hmm. yes, but... You um, could. Yeah. You could, but you're going to live on $2,700 a month now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Trade-offs. That's exactly. It. Exactly. Uh, well, Jeremy, this has been a delightful conversation it's so refreshing to talk about motivational interviewing uh, with another colleague. You know, I don't know for anybody that's listening, you're probably not going to find a lot of financial planners that are like deep on motivational interviewing like Jeremy is. But if you like what he has to say, I would say reach out to Jeremy and <laughs> he can help you with that. But um, Jeremy, what what parting piece of advice or guidance would you offer folks as they're navigating their financial life? Yeah, the phrases I like to use together is uh, learn the math do the math, follow the math. Like there, there are lots of math-based decisions that are out there. And so many people uh, don't know all the options. So many people haven't explored that, the options. Uh, and they haven't um, almost given themselves the permission to go against the grain. Like when you go to McDonald's with your retired buddies, they basically all file for social security at 62. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's hard to go against that grain when you've done the math and realize, okay, I'm better off filing for social security at 67, whatever right. that is. And spend right. the next five years hearing these people tell you that you're wrong because what they're really trying to do is make themselves feel right. Oh um, man. So it's, it's, yeah. it's hard to go against the grain with a lot of financial decisions uh, okay. and doing the math, kind of learning the math first kind of empowers you because you know the reasons mm-hmm. behind it. Uh, because th- th- there's just a lot of math-based decisions that are there and just take the time to to learn what's going on uh, on there. And, and especially for retirement, like, um, you know, when you're 20 and you're investing, like you can learn what's a good mutual fund or not, or it's a good time to invest or not, right? Because yeah. if you make a mistake this month, you just, you get next month to try it over again. Right. But when you hit retirement, there's a lot of things about your retirement date, your pension, your social security. You do it one time, you can never change it. And so that's that's daunting to the point where a lot of people either don't want right. to explore that because they're fear you know fear of making the wrong decision, or they just figure I'm going to rely on on kind of what others have done because yeah. you know the worst case scenario is I'm just as bad off as everyone else. But like don't don't <laughs> oh. fall into either one of those uh, traps. And that's why we we like to focus on a, a process. You know, if uh, if anyone's interested, they can go to fivestepretirementplan.com. And that yeah. talks about our process. When you're facing a big decision like retirement, you ought to have a process that is, yes. is reasoned and empowering and guides you through it. And that's, uh, that's where we talk about it there. 
I really appreciate that. And it's, it, this is that, I think there's an age old tension and having lived in both the planning world and the therapy world, right? Therapy world is often really big on follow your intuition and, and go with what feels good. And culturally, I think there's a lot, can be a lot of that. Sure. But when it comes to retirement planning, at a minimum, learn the math. What is it? Learn the math, do the math. Learn the math, do the math. You'll probably follow the math by that point. But I tell you, if you just do the first two, learn the math, math do the math, math, you'll come out ahead. You'll probably do better off if you follow the math too. But uh, the first two steps is uh, the most important. But you can at least make a conscious decision to go against the math exactly. if you want. Right. But I think just that explore, I, I heard that word and I really want to magnify that as we end this. Work with a financial planner to explore your options. You don't know what's available to you. Jeremy, you've run through a gazillion retirement plans and projections in your day, I'm sure. And so you you have a pretty good sense for the range of options and way things can go. Right. I'm sure you get the odd thing. You're like, man, I didn't see that one coming. But there's probably more of the exception than the rule. So, Which is why you do the math. Which is why you do right? that. You can't make that assumption. Just do the math. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so much. Uh, we'll make sure to uh, hit a link to that website if people want to connect there. And uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a blast, Ed. Thanks so much. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.